Welcome to the Living Out Podcast. I'm your host, Darren Steele, where queer thought leadership meets social justice and well-being. As a personal leadership and life coach, I help GBTQ men use their difference to make a difference, to lead others in creating a more humane world. You can find out more about my coaching and listen to previous podcast episodes at darrensteel.com and check out my magazine on Medium, Think Queerly. So if you're a listener of the podcast or if you've been listening for a while, you've heard me use expressions like living out leadership, living out the best of who you are. And for quite some time now, I've been saying how to use your difference to make a difference kind of using that in a sense of a branding, how we as LGBTQ people can take back the, what might be perceived as the, the, the negative about us that we're the other. And that's a, a binary way of thinking, right? But in that we've had to experience either living in the closet or hiding away parts of ourselves or as a trans person, perhaps dealing with different degrees of gender dysphoria, uh, not identifying in, in, in your heart and mind with how you feel about the sex you were born with, not being able to then fully express and live authentically outside of yourself who you know that you are and feel that you are on the inside. So I'm currently working on a living document, how to make a difference, how to use your difference to make a difference. And I would invite you to head over to my website and uh, subscribe. It's forthcoming. I hope to have it available in the next week or so, and I'll talk more about it in future podcasts. But I'm bringing together these ideas of living out and by living out by being seen, by being visible, and then taking an active LGBTQ evolutionary approach to leadership, using what makes us unique, using our insights, our gifts as having feel or having felt like we were other than, and not that that was something we taught ourselves, rather it was something that we learned. And then literally backing up or coming back across that bridge to say we might be different but that doesn't make us bad we might be different but that doesn't mean those of you categorizing us labeling us as other or different are de facto better than us serendipity I was listening to the TED interview um, with Yuval Noah Harari, and his uh, the title of that show is He Reveals the Real Dangers Ahead. He is both a historian and a futurist, and he was talking about the future and the fact that we are missing a narrative for the future. And it just, it blew my mind. And it was tying into something that I had not so clearly identified what I've been trying to express in this concept of using your difference to make a difference and how LGBTQ have very specific and unique gifts that we can bring to the table, our insights to be very effective leaders in evolutionary change to improve the world, to improve humanity, to help other people 
begin to recognize and accept and to break down these barriers. And then I read an article by George Monbiot, How Do We Get Out of This Mess?, which came from seeing his TED Talk at the end of July. And then I realized, oh, Yuval Noah Harari got this from George Monbiot. So I picked up his book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, which I plan to read in the next week. And having read just the um, introduction and the start of the first chapter, the article that I read by Monbiot on The Guardian is, is pretty much the introduction in the book or, or the first few pages of uh, the first chapter. So Monbiot talks about this restoration story idea, and it's looking into the past and saying that there have been dominant narratives. So even though fascism was not a good thing, the way in which it was presented to the people in the countries um, that were fighting the fascist fight, like in Germany and Italy, was that it had a narrative. And a narrative is this story structure of, you know, the hero's journey. The It's broken down into three parts. There's the, 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 the challenge, the problem, the struggle. And the journey is the second act, going through all the problems, facing your demons, overcoming hurdles, being lost in the jungle, looking like you're going to lose your life. And then act three, the final act, is where most times the hero overcomes. And there's a new beginning. The problems have been solved. There's a light at the end of the tunnel and everything is better and everyone lives happily ever after. Now, these are, of course, general terms, but this apparently is the way that we as human beings tend to understand the world through a narrative structure. Um, If you dig deeper into linguistics and semantics, how we also communicate with each other is through metaphor. Uh, If you look at um, older versions of the English language or over older versions of French or older versions of like middle high German. Um, there are so many pastoral metaphors. Everything is compared to the land, to agriculture, uh, even sexual metaphors have that sort of expression. Um, this is the way in which we understand things by comparing one thing to another, but then also building a story and the way in which apparently we understand or believe an argument or are convinced of a new argument is by understanding it through a story, through a narrative. And it might not be as complex as Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, but when we move into the realm of politics, that's when a narrative has the power of story to save humanity. And this is what Monbiot calls calls the, the restoration story. So I'm going to just reference a few quotes from the article. So he writes, political renewal depends on a new political story without a new story that is positive and propositional rather than reactive and oppositional. Nothing changes. So going back to the the story of fascism. So pre-World War II and the buildup in Nazi Germany, many of the followers of Nazism believed in this story that was being told 
by the Nazis. That, you know, they were a, a privileged race, they had a heritage that needed to be preserved, and that when, you know, all of these things were made to happen in Germany, they would be a master race, and there would be, you know, more freedom and more income and a better life for everyone. Remember I said <laughs> that fascism is, if fascism is definitely not a good thing, but the people that believed it believed in it because they saw themselves in a future that made their lives better. Then the war was won, fascism was crushed, and it was replaced by, generally speaking, liberalism. And Harari gives a really excellent explanation in the TED interview about what liberalism really means, and that it's not a bad word, and it's not necessarily the opposite of republicanism, in the context of United States politics anyway. And that went for a little while. And then we moved into this very dominant capitalist neoliberal, neoliberalist structure, which has privileged the one percenters, and has made human beings just a product of a capitalist society where we are basically working to pay others through um, creating a, a business or a product that builds up the one percenter's income and or we are paying rents in some way literally rent to rent an apartment or figuratively rent in the sense of a mortgage on property, something that we do not own, but we are renting. And the question, why does the world seem so horrible right now? Why does it seem like we don't have a future? Why can't we solve the climate crisis? Why is everybody on you know, one side or the other? It's either there's no such thing as a climate emergency or what the fuck is wrong with you? How can you be so blind? How can you not see this? It's because we don't have a political narrative for the future right now. What we have, going back to this quote, is a negative situation one that's reactive, one that's about opposition, one that is about division. <clears throat> and in this state, nothing will change. In fact, just things seem to get worse and worse and worse. We look at the demagogues, we look at the oligarchs, we look at the pretty much the loss of democracy in the United States right now. And the horrible human being who is in power at the moment. And we can't just put the blame on him. This has been building for some time, and many individuals have played the part in allowing this, in manipulating um, how we think. And as human beings, other things I've read as well, apparently it is easier to engage us when we're upset and to continue to build upon that polarization and the more divisiveness and polarization it is, there is, the easier it is for things like populism to grow. And those individuals that side with these types of beliefs tend to be the ones that take more political action within that populist framework, within that racist or fascist framework, 
And they are the ones that will stand up and they are the ones who will vote. So coming back to another longer quote by Monbiot. The narrative we build has to be simple and intelligible. If it is to transform our politics, it should appear to as many people as possible crossing traditional political lines. It should resonate with deep needs and desires. It should explain the mess we are in and the means by which we might escape it. And because there is nothing to be gained from spreading falsehoods, it must be firmly grounded in reality. This might sound like a tall order, but there is, I believe, a clear and compelling restoration story to be told that fits this description. So what he is alluding to towards the end of his talk is to create a politics of belonging. As right now, we exist in most, in many places in the world right now through our politics as a politics of division within our municipalities, within our provinces and states, within our countries, and country against country. Just read the tweets by the current president of the United States, and boy, oh boy, is there something to be gained from spreading falsehoods? To this person's reign, there certainly is, and that is used to create further divisiveness and to keep people focused only on the immediate problem at hand and to distract people from possibly creating this narrative, this restoration story, where the world actually could be better, where we could have that vision for a better world. Now, yes, this is for all of us, not just LGBTQ people, but I'm mentioning this because I'm using this content to build upon my LGBTQ evolutionary leadership movement document that I invited you earlier to to sign up to to get on the list so I can send it to you as soon as I have it completed. As the other, in times like this, attention is put on us because we can be so easily demonized as part of the problem. So divisive politics and populist politics will be like, oh yes, the far left, those liberals. That's when these labels really have no meaning other than to try and say those people who do not want to support the individuals who currently have power, those people who want to have social rights and social justice or perhaps government funds allocated to making the world a better place. The larger global betterment evolutionary picture is not of interest to the individual right now who is suffering and doesn't have a job or thinks that they're going to lose their job through a layoff or automation or the introduction of AI. They're only thinking about themselves. And this also plays into the rise of populism. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? It's less about the evolution of humanity, which also involves things like climate change. 
what I'm recognizing, what's been a lack in me for certain periods, I guess, of my life, or maybe it hasn't been a lack. Maybe I haven't attuned to how important it really needs to be and how I've developed a greater understanding of forgiveness and empathy and how that's played out in my own life. It brings me to this next quote by Monbiot. So as human beings, we, and quoting Monbiot, possess an unparalleled sensitivity to the needs of others, a unique level of concern about their welfare, and a peerless ability to create moral norms that generalize and enforce these tendencies. We are also, among mammals, the supreme cooperators. So this is mostly our human nature, right? I think you would agree, if you step back and think about it, without any malice, without any judgment, that generally speaking, a human being in a good and happy and healthy frame of mind feels this way. That generally speaking, if you're walking down the street and a person falls, most of us would stop. We'd ask, are you okay? Do you need help? And yes, we are seeing individuals who just refuse to look. It's like one of the hardest things I find, whenever I walk out of my grocery store, there's usually always someone begging for change, sitting directly on the other side of the automatic door. And in my mind, I'm like, does this person really need money? Is this person a drug addict? And then I think, well, that's a judgment. And you know, if they are an addict, then, you know, they need some empathy. Maybe they do need some help and, and yada, yada, yada. And then I think about what's going on at the municipal level, and at, the, at the provincial level, that the current premier is trying to make cuts to social welfare programs, especially for individuals with addictions and with health concerns and depression and all this sort of stuff, and not being able to look that person in the eye. I am not perfect at this. Maybe 50% of the time, I do try and look at that person and acknowledge them and say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to give you right now. And that still hurts because I'm recognizing my and their humanity at the moment. But when we turn away from the one, it is so much easier to turn away from the many. Sam Harris, in his podcast, it's called Making Sense, talks about there were some studies done that when you see these ads on television, people that are suffering from famine or drought, if the advertisement focuses on an individual, like a, a young girl or a single young boy, and they constantly have that camera on the face of that child, that, that child in suffering. They will receive more donations and phone calls and, and emails for people who want to donate to make a monthly donation. Then if they show like a second child, so let's say they focus on a young girl, and then they talk about in the same village, there's also this young boy. 
the percentage of donations drops dramatically. I don't remember what the percentage is, but it's a pretty significant number. And as soon as the numbers increase, like a whole village, it is a huge percentage drop in the number of people who will then take action. Because we have a challenge seeing the bigger picture. We have greater empathy, I suppose, when we see one person suffering at a time. And we feel, perhaps cognitively, that we can actually make a difference in this one person's life. Even though probably most of us recognize that if we make a donation, it's not going to that little girl in the video, in the advertisement. But it doesn't matter. So we need to think of how we approach making a difference in the world in the sense of one person at a time and how we can be the change we want to see in the world by first us being that change, having that impact on another person and just trusting in the domino effect. Because if more of us pick up this leadership baton, it will have an impact. It will take time. Which leads me into another quote by Monbiot. We have been induced by politicians, economists, and journalists to accept a vicious ideology of extreme competition and individualism that pits us against each other, encourages us to fear and mistrust each other, and weakens the social bonds that make our lives worth living. We have lost our common purpose to find common ground in confronting our predicaments, and to unite to overcome them. And this is what I'm working on now, something I've been trying to put my finger on, this creation of a politics of belonging, this way in which we can create a queer leadership and, and what that means, and LGBTQ queer leadership that evolves and helps humanity look inward and then look outward at the impact that we have on the individual. And to break down that binary concept that limits us, not just in gender and sexuality, but from absolute right and wrong, from this politics of division towards, as I said, a politics of belonging. And understanding that some of our greatest struggles as LGBTQ people start from what we've been brainwashed to believe via the status quo. And through speaking with friends, through coming out, through finding our own community, through creating our own chosen families, through getting involved in politics, through the work that we've done with counselors and therapists and coaches, we can take all this wonderful self-awareness and understanding of who we are. We can bring that joy that has come from recognizing who we are and live out more and more, literally wearing our queerness on our sleeve, so to speak. Because the more we are seen, the easier it is to influence hearts and minds. 
But beyond that, how do we lead others? How do we use our difference to make a difference? So get on the list, head on over to darrensteel.com and in the sign up box at the, the bottom of the page at the footer, put in your name and your email. In the next couple of weeks, I will have my how to make a difference living document ready. Perhaps one final call to action. What small step, what small action, what small behavior can you put into play today that uses your difference to make a change, to speak up, but in a way that helps the other person listen and consider your point of view. If you enjoyed this episode of the Living Out Podcast, would you rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? And if you know someone who you think would benefit from listening to this episode, share it on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And to leave me a comment or ask me a question, head over to my website at darrensteel.com for all of the show notes, any additional links, and the opportunity to interact with me. I'm Darren Steele. As always, live out and live proud. Proud.